0: Please be seated, Amen. Glory to God alone. Please open your Bibles to the Book of James, chapter three. You can open the. Uh, you'll find the notes in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find the text on the back of the notes. Um, and this morning, we're going to try to finish chapter three, um, an important, I think, central section in the book. And so, as you turn, that will remind you of some of the ground we've covered. Chapter 3 begins with an appeal to the dispersed churches. But James refers to it as so the 12 tribes in the dispersion, and he asks them to consider or reconsider swiftly becoming teachers. He's concerned that in the in the body among us there are people who too quickly want to enter into teaching, and he indicates why because we who teach, he says, will suffer a greater more severe judgment. The same standard applied, but the the consequences for failure being greater. And he explains that the tongue is particularly difficult to control. And most of his concern is the tongue's potential to sow discord, conflict, and evil in the body. And that theme of conflict and discord in the body goes all the way through chapter 3 through 4, 11, and 12. It's one larger unit. You can see that by looking at 4, 1 to 2. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? We're still concerned with the things that make for peace in the body and the things that make for warfare and quarreling. And so after dealing with the tongue and would-be teachers, he now shifts to a related theme, would-be wise men. Who among you, he says, is wise and understanding? And we looked at this last week as James challenges us in how we evaluate wisdom. And the way James defines wisdom, and how to identify wisdom, and what its hallmarks are, are likely different than our own if we're not coming back to Scripture to let it inform us. And then we look specifically at the hallmarks of ungodly wisdom. There is an anti-wisdom. There is something that may seem wise, have plausibility to it. And James says that its source is not coming down from above, but in verse 15, it's of the earth. It's worldly. It's unspiritual. It's fleshly. Ultimately, it is demonic. So I'd like to begin by reading James 3, 13 through the end of the chapter. And this morning, we're to focus primarily on the hallmarks of God's true wisdom, the wisdom that comes from above. And and not just as a conceptual study, but that we might walk in it, that we might be wise and act wisely. So let's begin by reading James three thirteen to the end of the chapter. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Lord God, I pray that you would inform our minds and our hearts that we might see and identify true wisdom, see and identify the wisdom in this world and walk in wisdom. Lord, we want to be those peacemakers. We want to be those who sow a crop of righteousness. We need your wisdom, wisdom from above to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. So, looking at this section as a whole, 13 to 18, he asks the body among itself, who among you is wise? And we consider that wisdom is not some special virtue set aside for all stars, but all Christians are called upon to be wise. James has already commanded us in chapter 1, verse 5, if you lack wisdom, you need to ask for it. we consider that wisdom's source is from God. It's, It's not a wisdom that can be found in this world. It comes from above. All of us need to be growing in wisdom. Wisdom is a virtue that we need to be pursuing. Some of us will make more progress than others, and those may become teachers, leaders in the body. But wisdom is a matter of concern for all of us. It should mark God's people. Then, James spent most of his time in the following verses looking at its counterfeit the anti-wisdom the the false wisdom and its distinguishing marks are its fruit and its source the source being in the heart selfish ambition and jealousy if that's in your heart james says i don't care what you've got i don't care what you can quote i don't know what i don't care what verbs you can parse in greek stop boasting and lying against the truth this is not the wisdom that comes down from above we've already seen james make the point that demons Back in chapter 2, remember you say that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe this and tremble. Demons can have accurate theology. Just because you can know the truth and just because you can confess the truth doesn't necessarily qualify you to be anything more than a demon. Likewise here, apart from whatever it is you might be saying, what's in your heart is selfish ambition and zeal, you're, you're not acting in wisdom. Because wisdom has to occupy our throne of our hearts. And that selfish ambition and that zeal that's in the heart of the anti-wisdom will breed disorder, chaos, instability. It's the opposite of peace in every vile practice. So James insists that you can recognize the true and false wisdom by their fruit. We talked last week about how whenever you're talking with someone, I think this, this this theme of wisdom is most applicable in situations of potential conflict. Situations where people could get upset, where tempers could rise. I think that's where it really becomes clear. When things start to go sideways, when you notice a certain edge in your voice or someone else's, James is telling you to stop. And I, I confess my own weakness that I'm tempted to think, yeah, but you're right, so just make two more points and they'll see it, then we can be done. And that wisdom that says that is from hell. It's demonic. It's from the flesh. It's from the world. James is saying, stop boasting about the truth. Stop talking. This morning, we're going to look at the truism by contrast. But before we do that, I want to make one other example or point of demonic wisdom. I'm sure it comes in many Fashions And last week, I was really limited to speaking to my own particular temptations, the temptation to to press on, even if there is a certain edge or aggressiveness to my tone, because I'm right after all, or the desire to be the guy who zings the other person, the mic drop moment. I thought of one other place that, at least for me, and maybe this shows up in your life, this demonic wisdom can come, and by contrast, God's wisdom can be seen. And that's in parenting. It's in parenting. Maybe you've ever been there. You're doing something. You're reading a book. You're doing some work for me. I can be trying to read or prep a message on the deck. And then it becomes clear through the growing discord that the children are not walking in the truth and the light. You can just tell. I mean, it's funny how what James says this, we can tell when they're having conflict. Well, you can just tell, obviously. Listen to the way they're talking to each other. And in that moment, I know that what God would call on me to do is to get up and figure it out and, and try to shepherd my kids and try to figure out what's going on, unless there's some exigent, extreme circumstance. But I know something else. I know that if I just put a little edge on my voice, a little bite in my bark, I can get what I want, which is them to be quiet and to leave me alone. I know that if I, doesn't, I don't have to yell, I don't have to scream, it just needs to be a little, just a little knife edge in there, just a little grit. And they'll they'll cower, they'll back down, they'll, they'll, they'll give me what I want. And what I want, after all, is kids who are getting along and being peaceable. It's not a bad thing that I want. And so the temptation for me, the demonic wisdom, is to do that. Because it works most of the time. But I'm also training my children to fear me. I'm training my children not to fear God, but to fear Dad's wrath. I'm training them in all sorts of other things. But that wisdom, and this is what I can struggle with, is it, it'll give me what I want, and it'll give it to me quickly. This is what comes back to your selfish ambition or desire. I want to be left alone. I want to get done with this pastor's pen article. I want to finish what I'm doing. And loving people and dealing with them is messy and takes time. And the wisdom from below, to me at least, says just, just put a little edge, a little bark in, and you can get what you want. And that wisdom is from hell. That wisdom is from hell. Again, I'm just confessing my own sins here, but perhaps you have noticed the same temptations as well. Well, in contrast to that, James now wants to tell us about the wisdom that comes from above. And it's a list of of character qualities, similar, in fact, to Paul's fruit of the Spirit. Some commentators have even suggested that Because the spirit is nowhere really directly mentioned in James, that James is viewing wisdom almost in the same role as the spirit. I think that might be going a bit far, but there are some similarities. And here we get wisdom's description in verse 17. Wisdom's description. We got the description of the false wisdom. We know, it it comes from a heart of zeal, bitter jealousy, and selfish ambition. We know the fruit is disorder, chaos, instability, and conflict. Here we get wisdom's description, the wisdom from above, namely. And what's interesting, and I'll read a quote here from um, Professor Varner. The reader limited to a translated text is unable to appreciate the rhetorical flourishes that can be heard in the original reading of the book by its hearers. What he's saying is there's this rhetorical elements in the Greek text that don't show up in English. Six words consecutively begin with the same letter. He alliterates in his qualities. Six of them begin with epsilon, and they share similar endings. Furthermore, the second and third words rhyme in their ending, and this is followed by three words that are initiated by an alpha. So we get so it's structural alliteration. Six words in a row, beginning with epsilon. Let me get some rhyming. Let me get words beginning with alpha. And Varna goes on to say this. This intentional alliteration contrasts orally in graphic manner with the preceding vice list, which has no such alliteration. The contrast of the sounds conveys an oral message about the difference between the behavioral disharmony that comes from below and the harmonious order of the behavior that descends from or above. This rhetorical impact of the collective sounds conveyed meaning. What he's saying is this. There's a natural harmony, melodiousness, symmetry, and order, even in the way James describes the wisdom from above. It also might be that he's putting it this way to help aid in memorization. It's pithy. And next to the statements about the wisdom from below, the the contrast of the beautiful symmetry and order is clear. Even in just the way he says it, he's modeling this. So let's dive in. We've got seven descriptions of godly wisdom. The first, but the wisdom from above is first pure. And that reference to from above, which he's already used just two verses earlier in verse 15, references all the way back to James chapter 1, if you'll turn there. Your blank here is this wisdom is from God. This wisdom is from God. Look at chapter 1, verse 16. In contrast to the danger, the potential of blaming God as the source of your temptations, James wants us to know what God is the source of. It's not our temptations, but every good gift and every perfect gift. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow Due to change. So this wisdom from above is already tied into a theme of that's where God is, and that's where God's good gifts come down. Wisdom being one of those good gifts. He's already told us if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all generously, without reproach. God freely gives this wisdom. Not a wisdom to be the smart, clever guy, but a wisdom to walk. In meekness and righteousness in a difficult world. A wisdom to love difficult to love people. A wisdom to endure difficult trials. That's the type of wisdom James is talking about. It's the wisdom to act wisely and in a godly way in a sin-cursed fallen world. That's James's concern for wisdom. A wisdom that enables you to work your way and interact in the body of Christ and not create fights and quarrels. That's wisdom. That's that's his concern, and this wisdom comes from above, and it's contrasted with the wisdom that comes from below. Now, what's interesting is he says it's first pure. He highlights one qualifier above all the others. First pure, then we get the other six. And what's difficult about that to some degrees is pure is probably the most abstract term. Pure wisdom. Wisdom is first pure. What's he trying to get at here? Well, the idea, I believe, is purity through and through. We've already seen that what marks the evil of the false wisdom is actually having it deep-in-your-heart selfish ambition, evil desire. What makes the tongue's propensity for wickedness so great? It can first praise God, and then it can curse people bearing His image. There's a duplicity, a doubleness to it, which goes back to chapter 1, the the double-minded man who ought not to expect to receive anything. Double-mindedness, if you look in chapter 4, is going to show up again in verse um, ooh, 8. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Um, cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. A word James possibly invented himself, Dia suke, split-souled. And it's the picture of inward divide, a lack of integrity. The tongue exhibits this perfectly, this ability to flatter and say nice things to God and then Trash other people. And so I think purity is in contrast to that. No taint or defilement. Pure gold through and through. Wherever you sample it, you get the same thing. I I think that's the idea. So your blanks here. This wisdom is single-minded as opposed to double-minded and untainted. Single-minded and untainted. This also then means that wisdom and what we're about to see, these traits, are, are not skills you can just learn. You couldn't just teach a seminar. It has to start from purity purity of heart, purity of mind, single mindedness, a lack of division. These aren't just skills you can use. It starts from purity of heart and mind, single minded, untainted. And I think that notion of purity, singleness goes through this list. It's first that, before you can go be wise in the body, you need to first yourself be sincere before God. you need your first first yourself to be single minded and untainted before him. That's I believe why this is first then peaceable, peaceable. Peace is a big characteristic of this wisdom. We see it here, and then we see it in verse eighteen: Peacemakers sowing peace, making peace. And the idea here is first and foremost in reference to God. This is more the Jewish idea of shalom than simply a lack of conflict. This is important to get right up front because there's a way you can have peace, and that's simply don't say anything controversial, don't deal with anything. And at least immediately, there can be peace. I, I'd remind you of the letter we're reading. <laughs> James says some difficult things, doesn't he? James James doesn't pull his punches calls it like he sees it and sometimes he escalates the tongue is set on fire by hell even believe demons believe and tremble this wisdom is earthly unspiritual demonic well there's a sort of peace you can have if you don't talk like that but the peace he has in mind is first and foremost peace with god look look over in chapter 4 where this is going to climax he's he's James is going to make the argument that these passions These desires that are either wicked or disproportionate. You want a good thing too much. In my example of my kids, I want my kids to not squabble. I want to get my work done. That's a good thing. I want it so much I'll fight for it and attack you for it and pummel you with my words for it. Now I want a good thing too much. James is going to make the case that such desires cause all the conflict in the body, and constitutes spiritual adultery from God, because we're not really valuing and worshiping him as we ought. Look at verse 3. You ask, you not receive. Well, look at 4, 1 to 3. You'll see the connection of thought. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this your passions that are at war within you? You desire, and you not have, so you murder. Now, that word for passion is zeal or bitter jealousy, and your desires, selfish ambition, same words in Greek. What James says causes all the conflict in the body. He's going to show here. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. No no change of thought. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulteresses. ESV adulterous people is too weak. The, the footnote that mine has at least, plural adulteresses, is better. Because it's tying into all the Old Testament imagery of God's faithlessness. Wife. So what James is saying is when we want evil things or we want good things disordinately more than we want to please God, it causes quarrels and fights among us and it makes us his enemies. That's what he goes on to say. You adulterous people do not know that friendship of the world is enmity, hostility with God. So James is calling us to be at peace with God and not in conflict with God. And we're at conflict with God when we're worshipers of the creation, when we're worshiping stuff and things and all sorts of lesser goods or evils more than we worship him. And so when James talks about peaceable, peaceful, it's in the context of how God views peace. It's, it's in the context of righteousness breeding peace. I, I got to stress that, otherwise you may just think this godly wisdom is simply never saying anything difficult, never dealing with anything. And There's a sense in which if you just do that, there will be a sort of peace that you can enjoy temporarily. That's not what he means. First and foremost, this peaceable is in view with God. In fact, turn your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs 3, really quickly. Um, James may in part be building off of uh, this depiction of wisdom here in in Proverbs 3. Starting in verses thirteen through eighteen. Proverbs three, thirteen to eighteen. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom, and the one who gets understanding. For the gain of hers better than the gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand, in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are the ways of pleasantness. All her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. So the wisdom from above is seeking peace. Peace with God, peace in the community. But not peace at any price. Not not peace at the price of truth. James is already making that abundantly clear. James could have not shaken the church up if he just wrote a nice letter saying he loves him and he's praying for him and he thinks they're doing well. And instead, we've seen James consistently challenge us, rebuke us, shake us up. And James is pursuing peace. He's peaceable. Jesus was peaceable. Paul is peaceable. He's pursuing peace. But first and foremost, in reference to God, peace as God defines it. Peace that comes at being at peace with your creator and then at peace with his people. That's what we're talking about. Not some shallow, just, I don't get involved in things. Loving your neighbor may involve some difficult things. We've seen that. Anyway, I got to move on. So peaceable, peaceable. Next, gentle. Now, the idea here is yielding and kind. Specifically, not insisting on your own rights, not ins- being willing to be wronged, being, being willing to put up with difficulty. That's, that's the idea, especially in regards to matters of judgment. We see this word being used in Acts 24 when Paul is appealing to Felix. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness, that's our word, to hear us briefly. You're flexible. You're not rigidly set on doing it your way. And again, bring this into the concept of conflict. My goal is peace. I want us amening God's truth. I want us to have one common confession, at peace with our Creator, at peace with each other. I want that peace. And I'm flexible. I may think I know the best way to get there, but I'm open to how you want to do this. that That's the idea. Yielding kind. Philippians 4.5, same word. It says this. Um, you know this passage. Let your reasonableness, that's our word, be known to everyone. Maybe the opposite it might be stubborn, set in your ways. We're doing it way, we're doing it this way. You're, you're, you're gentle, yielding and kind. Yielding and kind. D, open to reason. Open to reason. Literally the Greek here means something like persuadable. Persuadable. And this ties in with the notion of not having your mind so made up you can't be reasoned with. I mean, because we'll be dealing with things, potential conflict, going and talking to a brother about something or a sister about something, bringing up something challenging. And you may well be right, and you may well well think you know what you're seeing. But even then, you, you need wisdom from above is willing to be corrected, willing to be instructed, willing to recognize maybe I didn't know everything or see everything. Proverbs 18, 13. One gives an answer before he hears. This is folly and shame. If I make up my mind too quickly. This is part of the problem that's wrong with prejudice in in the the bad sense. You've made up your mind and no amount of evidence to the contrary will change it. You're stuck. That's bad. That's wrong. That's not wise. Proverbs 18, 17. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. You're open to reason. You're open to hearing things you haven't considered. Part of this is also taking the time to understand what the other person is saying. I mean, this is such a great tool to use when you're having a real disagreement with someone. Is and I'll do this sometimes when I'm debating or discussing with someone. Like, let's just pause. Can I? I want to. I want to see if I can articulate what you're saying. Can I make your case for you? Maybe you could try doing the same thing with me. And am I getting you right? Is this what you're saying? Well, that indicates I'm I'm willing to hear the other person out. I'm trying to understand them. The the contrast would be, I'm right. I don't care what you're saying. You're wrong. I don't need to understand or listen to you or consider what you're saying because I know you're wrong because I know I'm right. Let me just show you why I'm right. Um, I've had somebody say this to me before. Are you listening to me or are you just waiting to talk? That's the opposite of this. It's the opposite of this. The wisdom from above is open to reason. It's persuadable. I'll hear you out. Maybe there is merit to what you're saying. Maybe I haven't considered what you're saying. Okay? Persuadable. Next, full of mercy and good fruits. Full of mercy and good fruits. Now, this full of language um, is a, is bouncing off of, as opposed to the wisdom from above and the, t- the evil tongue. Look back at verse 8. No human being contained the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. The tongue that sows conflict, the wisdom from below is full of something, and it's restless evil. Here, the wisdom from above is full of mercy and good fruits. We've already seen mercy at the end of chapter 2, at the end, sorry, verse 13, middle of chapter 2, triumphs over judgment. It's merciful. It rejoices over judgment. And it's full of good fruits, which is another reference is general goodness, this wisdom from above. So to sort of summarize where we've come from so far, you're after a peace, but you're making a peace that is built upon peace with God and on his terms and with his truth, peace with one another. It's pure. It's sincere. It's yielding. It's flexible. It's not insisting on its own way. It's willing to be wronged. It's willing to put up some difficulty. It's not obstinate. It's persuadable, and it's full of mercy. <laughs> you know, if you said that the wrong way, if you want to take back what you that's fine, that's fine, that's fine, I don't mind. Full of mercy and good fruits. Next, impartial, impartial. And the idea here is non-judgmental or wholehearted, getting back to that unified nature again. Also, further noticing this notion of not having pre-made up your mind, with also an emphasis of just not being judgmental. We're going to see the opposite of this in 4.11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law. So if you're trying to correct or instruct someone, your desire isn't just to condemn them. Your desire isn't to just show them they're guilty. You've got a greater desire. You want to be reconciled and to be at peace. And I'm bringing these examples up because this is where this most comes into play. It's easier to get along and be peaceable when you're just chatting about the game or the weather, where where this really becomes starkly clear which wisdom we're walking in is in conflict. When I want something apparently differently than you want. When our desires are at odds with each other. What we think is the best way to do things is at odds. That's when this becomes most clear. So that's why I'm zeroing into the sources of conflict. It's right where we're going into chapter 4. And so when you're at odds with, when you want something different than, when you disagree with your brother or sister, your desire isn't that they just see that you're right. This gets back to my desire to be the right guy. I want you to see that I'm right. That's a wicked motivation. I want you to believe the truth. If my goal is I want vindication, I want you and everyone to see that I was right. The desire to say I told you so. That's from below, not above. It's impartial, and it's sincere. It's sincere, genuine, and without hypocrisy. The word hypocrisy comes from two Greek um, concepts. Hupo, underneath, like a hypodermic needle. A needle goes under the skin. Under, and "krete," a mask, under a mask. And it referenced Greek um, theater where the, the angry character would wear the angry mask and the sad character would wear the sad mask and the funny character would wear the funny mask. And what it was referencing is the potential for someone to peer one way on the outside and underneath be something else. You see how that fits right in with James' thinking of what's evil about the tongue, what's evil about the double-minded man. No, someone who is sincere, ending kind of where we started, is through and through the same. They don't appear to be one way and yet be another. This is the deadly leaven that Jesus references of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Luke chapter twelve, verse one. He began to beware He began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. He likens it to leaven because it spreads, a little bit contaminates and spreads through. And so God's wisdom is marked by a genuine desire for peace on his terms, in his way. It's yielding. It's full of mercy. It's not judgmental. It's not just trying to condemn. And it's sincere and genuine. This is why it's not just traits you can put on, because if it was a learned behavior, the potential for hypocrisy would be right there. I just do the peaceable things, I just say the peaceable things. My heart can be somewhere else entirely. James, For James, the true wisdom from above has to come from the heart and be the genuine expression of the person. So that is wisdom's description. This is how you want to measure yourself in conflict. You want to measure someone who's wise, who can b- walk into something, be involved in something difficult, and bear this fruit. That's those who are wise among us. It's not the mic drop guy, it's not the zinger guy, it's this man or woman. Pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. This is also, James, unpacking what it means the meekness of wisdom. Remember, the defining characteristic of wisdom is meekness. Meekness, not weakness, meekness. Not being overly impressed with who you are. Humility, in other words. That's the defining characteristic of wisdom. James then goes on to show us its harvest, wisdom's harvest. The ESV translates, a harvest of righteousness is just the same word we saw at the end of 17, fruit or fruits. Full of mercy and good fruits. And he's like, let me show you some more of this fruit. And what we're going to look at it the what, the how, and the who. The what the how, and the who. What is the fruit of wisdom? A harvest of righteousness. A harvest of righteousness. Which means, I believe, its fruit is righteousness. Not a harvest from righteousness, but a harvest which consists of, which is made up of righteousness in the body. This gets back to why it's not peace, first and foremost, that's the goal. If your desire is peace at any price, you can have a certain peace by lying. You can have a certain peace by telling people what they want to hear. You can have a certain peace. You just coexist. Right? You've seen the bumper stickers, and you can get a little temporary sort of peace. But James isn't first and foremost after peace. Peace is big. It's a big deal. Righteousness is the harvest we're after. And righteousness demands conformity to God's law and God's rule. See, it'd be all too easy if you could just let go of truth. You can be peaceable. You can be nice. The challenge is holding on to truth and not being a jerk. That's the challenge. The easy thing is to let go of truth. And you can just affirm everybody. And, well, I see your perspective. And that's valid. And that's good. And you can just be totally relativistic. And you can have a sort of peace. You won't have righteousness. Now, the the challenge and where we need wisdom is to bring the two together. The other side that I probably struggle more with is, well, who cares about being nice? I'm right. Wisdom is doing both. Wisdom is not budging on truth, and yet being peaceful, gentle, open to reason. That's why it's difficult. That's why it's a sign of maturity in the body. They're both essential. We're after righteousness. And you're not going to have righteousness apart from truth, God's word, God's law, God's character. Which is why James can write such a hard-hitting letter and be peaceable. Because he's after righteousness. Its fruit is righteousness in the body. Now, righteousness and peace are closely connected. Psalm 85.10, steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. But this is from, this righteousness then is from, given the section of the book we're in, teaching, encouragement, and rebuke. James is writing a hard-hitting, challenging letter to the dispersed body pursuing righteousness. Look at how he ends this letter. Go to chapter 5, verse 19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death will cover a multitude of sins. That's part of how you sow a crop of righteousness. Sometimes it even means rebuking, calling people back from the edge. Uh, The challenge, again, is doing this, teaching, encouraging, correcting, rebuking in a peaceable wisdom from God way. That's the challenge. Teaching, encouragement, and rebuke. So that's the what. That's what it bears. It's the result. How? How does it get sown? That's the crop. How, how is the seed sown? It is sown in peace. It is sown in peace, which I think is a practical summary of what he's just said. It's practical righteousness pursued peaceably. Practical righteousness pursued peaceably. The result is the body becomes more like Jesus. The body becomes more obedient. The body is more righteous and that result is pursued peaceably. Turn to 2 Timothy. I think we can see this in in a clear example here. And the synthesis of Paul's thinking and, and James's thinking. 2 Timothy 2:24 2, to 26. The Lord's servant must not be Quarrelsome, but kind to everyone; able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents. Gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. That's that's the stance we correct. Not I'm the power of God to convict you. I'm willing to be wronged. I'm, 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 I'm trying to I'm trying to correct you, but I'm being gentle. I'm being loving. I'm trying to speak to you. And trusting in God to work in the heart. This is a harvest of righteousness sown in peace. This is this is how it's pursued. Not quarrelsome, kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to knowledge of the truth. I think that's a wonderful example of a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace sown in peace. One other point from sown is what is sown may take time to ripen. I'm, I'm emphasizing this because part of the reason we avoid hard subjects is because we have bad experiences. I think most of the reason why we, we run from um, correcting our erring brother or sister is because the last time we did it, it went poorly. Maybe it went poorly because we went poorly. Maybe it went poorly. We did everything right, and the other person didn't want to listen to us, and so we just don't want to do it. It's a harvest. And I just planted a garden about a month ago, and I, I knew better, but I went out the next day to see if anything was growing. And, am I the only one that's said, and you know better, but that's a good check. Well, the harvest you sow doesn't come up immediately, does it? Proverbs 28, 23. Whoever rebukes a man... Will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with the tongue or probably even closer to, to the theory here. Hebrews 12:11, talking about God's discipline. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. So it's a harvest rafter and sometimes pursuing righteousness in the body in peace actually can create some conflict. It can happen. We're looking for that harvest. Who? Who's doing this? By those who make peace. Two, two thoughts quickly because we've got to get to our communion time. The first is this this is, I think, where James is most clearly bouncing off of Jesus. You remember it was Jesus himself who said in Matthew 5 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You're doing the same work your father did. Your father. God is the real, true, eternal peacemaker. And then these people are making peace. The harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, last point here. A righteous body, then, is a peaceful body. That's the peace we're after. A righteous body is a peaceful body. The two are are connected. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And it's the peace that comes from having a common confession, a common agreement, from doing the work, listening to each other, talking, opening the Bible, understanding each other, persuading each other, so that we can amen with God's word with each other, being in full accord and of one mind, of the same spirit, as Paul says in Philippians 2. And when that happens, there is peace. Listen to Isaiah 32, 17. The effect of righteousness will be peace and the result of righteousness quietness and trust forever so there is a peace that we're seeking but it's the peace that comes from being right with God right with his people in agreement with his word that that's the peace we're pursuing that's why it takes wisdom I, I'm emphasizing this because I just know it can be tempting to think, oh no this is starting to become difficult we should stop doing it because we're supposed to be peacemakers. And again, I'll just remind you of the letter that this exhortation sits within. James doesn't think for a moment he's being unpeaceable. The letter of James is written by a peacemaker, sowing in peace, looking for a crop harvest and crop of righteousness. So that then becomes our model for wisdom and our actions and what we should be looking for in others. Let's close in a word of prayer as we get ready to have our time of communion. Lord God, pray that you would instruct us, conform our thinking to yours, that we would recognize your wisdom for what it is, that we would seek it and reject the wisdom of this world, reject the wisdom of our flesh, reject the wisdom of demons, that we might walk in your wisdom, that we would be peaceable, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits and sincere. Ultimately, Lord, you are the peacemaker. But we would be your sons and daughters. In Jesus' name, amen.